What an excellent song to sing as we enter into a time of studying about the church and how God intends His church to glorify the Son. As we uh, have been working through chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, it's evident that, that Paul is teaching us some very important things about how we're to see ourselves. But let us never make the mistake of thinking that this is really just about the church. It is about the church because the church is about Christ. And so we keep Him as the focus in all ways and in all things because we desire for His glory to reign in us and through us, not to exalt us, but to exalt Him among us. Very grateful for the Word of God and that it anchors us close to Him and very grateful when the Lord works it out in such a way that there is overlap between what we're learning in different parts of God's ministries here in the church and uh, we can see a unity and a uniformity through that. Uh, we were in Sunday school this morning and Ross was uh, teaching for us. He was standing in for Ivan, and uh, the Stewart family is on vacation this week. And so uh, Ross uh, was prepping to preach and decided to take a little detour, um, kind of an expansion on a certain point that we were dealing with in Ephesians chapter 5, and, and to look at the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ, which is so telling because today we're going to be looking at the church as the body of Christ, another one of those mighty metaphors. And so Praise God for using the scripture in these intricate ways to help to enrich our understanding of who he is and what he has made us to be. I, uh, I know that as saved sinners, we desire to be holy in everything that we do. I also know that we're not perfect at that. And so from time to time as Christians, we have to go back to our Father and, and thank him for the forgiveness that he's provided for us through the Son, Jesus Christ and recognize and, and confess that his victory on the cross overcomes even the sins that we have yet to do. Um, as a youth, one of the sins that I struggled with the most was having a, a livid temper. I, I got really upset at myself when I wasn't able to perform the way that I wanted to, or when I wasn't able to, to, to be as strong as I needed to be. And I remember as a young man, in something as, as dumb and as meaningless as sports or competition. If I didn't do well, I would often really be angry with myself. And on a couple of occasions, I remember punching a locker or punching the ground or being upset to the point where I ended up hurting myself because I was upset at my inability to do what I wanted to do. And so like a dummy, I'd walk around for several weeks with a splint on my hand, waiting for my hand to heal up, having broken a bone because I was angry at myself for not being good at doing one thing or another. That is what we call cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? You want to be better at something, and so you end up doing something illogically to hurt yourself when you think that you're trying to punish yourself for not being proficient at something. It doesn't make logical sense to, to turn your aggressions back on yourself in that way. The Corinthians were committing an error of that kind by exalting one spiritual gift over the other spiritual gifts that God had given to the church. And the damage that it was doing to the church was not superficial. It was truly hurting them. Paul understands that God's love for his church means that any harm done to her is an offense to him. So the apostle aims to correct this error in his people. He doesn't want the church to treat the church poorly. And so through the scripture we're going to be studying for the next couple of weeks, we're going to see some ways that the Corinthians are urged by by Paul, the apostle, to love one another better. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're just going to do a few verses today, starting in verse 12 and reading through to verse 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, 
and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Would you bow our heads and pray with me as we ask the Lord to guide us through our understanding of this text. God, we thank you for being a great God of wisdom and truth. The complexities of who you are sometimes overwhelm us, Lord God. We can, we can stand stunned in awe and wonder at how great you are and how holy and above us you are. But we also know, Lord God, that you don't want us to stay ignorant to the beauties and the intricacies of your character. And even so, Lord, you have designed your church to in some ways remind us of how great you are. I'm, I'm reminded of the, the high priestly prayer that you prayed in John 17, where you talked so at length, Christ, about how you and the Father were one, intimately one, and how you desired for the church in Christ, you to be one in similar ways. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would have our hearts fixed on the unity that you have set aside for us and made possible through the Spirit. Help us, God, to not be confused. Father, if we are weak of mind, uh, we rejoice that you are not, that you are mighty of mind. So, Lord God, fill in those gaps. Help us to understand what we cannot see on our own. We trust the work of the Spirit to make that possible. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God is merciful to speak about lofty concepts in ways that our finite minds can comprehend. The Word of God uses several dynamic metaphors to describe the New Covenant Church, each of which contributes to our understanding of what the church is and what God intends to accomplish through her. And, and so just a, as a way of reminder, you might remember if you've been with First Family Church for a while, about eight or nine years ago, I think it was, we went through and studied the metaphors of the church at length. But I just want to catch up to speed on what some of those metaphors were because each one of them contains vital information that will help us to love and cherish our Savior more, more completely. So we are apt to read at places in the New Testament Scripture that the church is like a flock of sheep. You cannot understand what Jesus means in John chapter 10 when he calls himself the Good Shepherd if you don't understand the ways in which the church resembles a, a flock of sheep. This metaphor emphasizes our need for dependence upon our shepherd. It enlightens our understanding of Christ's fulfillment of that role, specifically illustrating our need to know His voice, to come to trust Him better for all that we need. It shows us that Christ is our protector, that Jesus as our shepherd is the one that guards us from error, that guards us from the attacks that happen from those who are not of the flock. So in Matthew 18, Jesus assures us that even if one of us is lost, then the Father will leave the 99 and go and find them. So there is a great commitment to the sheep on the part of the shepherd. And as we think of the church as a flock of sheep, it's humbling, but it's beneficial to us. It helps us to grow in our appreciation for him. The church is also described as a family, which is evident by the name of this church. First Family Church refers to that biblical metaphor in places like John 1, in Matthew 3, we, we learn that those who receive God and trust, him in, in, and trust Him enjoy a connection through a shared identity, one that is unified under an ideal leadership as God the Father has authority over all of His children. 
and also comes with the benefits of belonging to him, of having a connection and a place to be. An inheritance that flows from that connection is our gift. Romans 8 expands upon this, explaining that by adoption, God brings us into his family and we are bestowed birthrights that last for eternity. It is by this union that we consider God not only our creator, but also our Abba Father, that, that deep connection as we understand ourselves as true children of the light. But the church must be understood not only by what it is, but also by what it is called to do. And so in places like 2 Timothy 2, Scripture refers to believers as soldiers in a kind of spiritual army under God's control. The church is an army for God. This illustrates a call to action under the authority and direction of our general. As soldiers, we are to have the proper view of the urgency and the danger that our calling brings. It is not easy or peaceful at all times to be a believer in Christ. We see the blessing of the order and the structure that God uses to keep us pointed in the proper direction and to help us to live productive lives as we honor Him. We also cannot deny that standing for the truth of God means that there will be many who are therefore opposed to us and will see us as a threat and, and perhaps as a target. We must be careful not to become lax, therefore, or distracted by the things of the world, but we instead need to keep our mission ever in mind and become unhindered by the, the things of the world uh, according to the orders given to us in places like Ephesians 6 where we're told to put on the full armor of God. In a metaphor that reveals that covenantal relation of our connection to God, we see in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that the church can be understood as the bride of Jesus Christ. And this echoes a tradition of looking at the nation of Israel in the manner of a bride, like Hosea and sections of the prophets. The church is described in terms of the intimate and personal connection of the covenantal relationship that Christ has secured for us. We see here the exclusivity of worshipful love that we are to give to Christ and to Christ alone. We're not to split our allegiance in this way between Jesus and, and any other. We see the importance of his headship over us, that he is our rightful leader and that we bow ourselves to his leadership and control. We are to think of this connection in terms of a wedding day that is not yet complete. Jesus, as our bridegroom, prepares a room for us. John 14 talks about this, that we will one day enjoy a, a union with him that's even greater than what we see now. And we'll one day see our Savior come and re redeem us and receive us to himself. In anticipation of this reunion, we're to strive and to remain holy and expectant. We're to encourage one another to cast off every weight that hinders and to, to be focused upon his return. We see also the church as the new covenant temple. Most vividly expressed in the second chapter of Peter's first letter, this metaphor explains that the, the the presence of the Holy Spirit of God no longer resides in a static location. It's not in a tabernacle. It's not in a temple somewhere, a physical building. But the Spirit of God now resides in our hearts, in the hearts of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. We are the sent out ones, but we're not sent out without the proper equipment. He comes with us. He dwells with believers so that no matter where we go, our Christ is near. We are being built up on the foundation of Christ and his teachings. These teachings being delivered to us by the prophets and the apostles. So as 1 Corinthians explained, we must see our bodies as temples of the living God. And we must also see the corporate nature of this metaphor as we keep in mind 
that God is crafting us together into one kind of structure through which worship is facilitated and conducted. We are each like stones being built together, being woven together into one great temple where the Spirit shines. So all these metaphors are beautiful pictures of what God intends for the church, what He wants her to be and what He wants her to do. But none of these quite capture the oneness with Christ and our diversity among one another quite as vividly as understanding the church as the body of Jesus Christ. This is an analogy that is exclusive to the new covenant church. Before the embodiment of Jesus, before Jesus took on flesh to dwell with us, you don't see the scripture talking about the body of Christ anywhere or the body of God. God chose not to use that kind of language in the old covenant. It is not until the spirit is delivered as an abiding helper to the church that the New Testament scriptures begins to talk in this manner about his chosen ones. So now think about this metaphor the way that Paul intends for us to think about it. In order to do that, we're going to need to have some clarity about what the word members means, as Paul uses this to refer to the people who make up the church. Members are, are, are not to be thought of in the way that we typically think about them today as membership in a group. Um, it is not so much about privileges and benefits. It is more about who we are. It is more about our being. It's more in, interdependent and in, uh, intimate than just belonging to a group of people by having your name on a list or having a little ID card. Uh, if I cut off my gym membership, I don't bleed from that, right? But if we're to think of the church as members of one living organism, as one body of Christ, then our connection should be so close to one another that there's pain in being apart from the body of Christ, that we should not want to be isolated from our brothers and sisters, for they are part of what we are. They have been fashioned into this physical expression of God's will. And He does His plan and His purpose and makes it known and makes it real through the actions of His people, the men and women that He has saved. Do we think about our connection to our church through membership in that way? Do we think of each other as members of one living body, one organism? Whereas very commonly we enjoy the benefits and features of our prime membership or our Costco membership or our gym membership or maybe a book of the club membership or some other membership that you uh, have signed up for. Maybe you paid a little dues to be a part of that membership. None of those can capture the kind of connectedness that we are supposed to have with one another as members of the body of Christ. So we've got to consider this connection in a more substantial way. Do we think about it like that? You know, some simply don't think about the church that way at all. The connection to them is associational. It is not ontological. Ontological is a philosophical word. It means the study of the being of things, right? What are things? And so when we think about our membership to the church, we think more, that's my association. That's who I'm connected to because I spend a lot of time with them. We have mutual interests. We might want to accomplish some of the same things. But it needs to go further than that. We need to think about our connection to our church ontologically. What has God made me to be? And how does that join me and bind me to the brothers and sisters that I see around me that also have the same spirit that resides within my heart? Some are able to think that way some of the time, but they find themselves often forgetting how vital this connection is. And so there may be seasons where they love their church well and they are connected and committed to their church, 
but then something else comes up that draws their attention away and for large lengths of time, they're not praying for the brothers and sisters. They're not feeling compelled to reach out to them and to call them or to visit with them and to spend that face-to-face time with them. And so some of us struggle like that. We know we need to see ourselves as part of this connected body. But in practice, we find our, our attention falling away from them. We don't treat the body of Christ with the honor that it deserves. But some truly have come to grasp this biblical understanding of the strong interconnectedness that we've been blessed with through this union. And so there's our hope that through the preaching of this section of 1 Corinthians 12, we're not going to be able any longer to be satisfied with an understanding of God's church that falls short of the depth of closeness that God intends for His people. May we be enriched by this. May this encourage us and may it give us a great appreciation for what God has done in joining us to His body and letting us have this representative life, this dwelling in which the actions that we live out in obedience to God's word create God's will being done in us and through us. Now, Paul the Apostle has actually been gearing us up for this part of his letter for some time. He is here returning to a theme he's already mentioned three separate places in 1 Corinthians. And so 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15 through 17, Paul wrote, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And when he says members there, he's clearly talking about body members, pieces of one whole body. He's not talking about simple membership, like the cheap form of membership we see in the world today. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Remember, Paul is really dealing with some worldliness within the Corinthians. They're true believers, but coming out of a pagan background and lifestyle, they have justified in their minds doing things that they should in no way, shape, or form have any association with. And so some of them were were practicing some of the pagan rituals that used to define their worshipfulness. And God is saying through the Apostle Paul that they can't afford to do those things. They must separate themselves from that kind of behavior. So shall I make the members of Christ the members of a prostitute? Never, he says. Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So think about the physical and yet at the same time the mystical union in intimate relationships. Two that are formally separate individuals break down those boundaries and those borders of individuality and they become joined together in their flesh. Much more than, this is much more spiritual than our, our culture wants to admit it to be. Oftentimes, uh, sexuality is so cheapened in our culture today that we miss the gravity of this blessing that God has given for the covenant of marriage. This warning about immorality elevates the depth of connection between brothers and sisters in Christ who are united in the Holy Spirit and translates to a, a similar level of importance in the way that we obey or deny the law of God in the ways that we use our physical bodies. What do I do with this, my body? It's not unrelated to my connection with this, the church of God, as God's body of which I am a part. So later in chapter 10, Paul returns to this concept. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? We're going to read this again later on for communion. He says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
So here Paul has alluded to the picture of this oneness in being that he would soon expand upon here in chapter 12 and has shown that it is only through Jesus' sacrifice of his own physical body that we're able to experience this level of covenantal connection with God and with one another. Participation in the sacrament is not only personal in the sense of it being a blessing for me, it is an outward expression of our unity in the work of Jesus, a work that brings us together and makes us this one body. And that is why in chapter 11, Paul puts such emphasis on the fact that we can come together to celebrate the Lord's table and we have to do it with other brothers and sisters in mind. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-nine. 29. He says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and eats and dr- he eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, if you remember back to chapter 11, he's talking about there how the Lord's Supper had become kind of a fiasco in the church, that there were some who were coming and bringing all lavish kinds of food, but they weren't sharing it with others. And so those who were poor within the church were not being fed. There were great lengths of time where they didn't have anything to eat or drink, and, and it was making a mess of what should have been a moment of great unity in the church. And so Paul scalds the Corinthians, and he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, without the church in mind as the body of Christ, then what he's doing is he's eating and drinking judgment upon himself. By making those believers feel isolated and uncared for, he's actually cutting off his nose to spite his face. So Paul is trying to help correct that in the church of Corinth. Paul picks this concept back up and he puts it to use again here in chapter 12 and expands upon it as he deals with the controversy that's surrounding spiritual gifts. He helps them to see that the the human body is a, a single organism and that that organism is made up of many members, many pieces. We're going to talk at depth next week about the diversity of the, the body and how each of these pieces has its place and plays its part within the function of the church. And so Paul is training us to think in these kind of ways. Though the different parts are many and diverse, they are effective in so much as they come together to work as one united by one spirit, intent on one purpose, directed by one head, the head being Jesus Christ. So the metaphor of the body as the church is used here to emphasize two complementary realities. It's here to emphasize the church's diversity, that we are many, that we all don't look the same or talk the same or bring the same kinds of skills or experiences to the table, but the fact that God has brought us all together and united us in one spirit means that this is his design for his church, that we're to enjoy the diversity of the church. But it also shows us the unity of it, that we can't express our uniqueness in the right ways if we disconnect ourselves from the body that we are to be serving and working alongside. The body metaphor catches both of these beautiful concepts. So Paul's main goal in these next three chapters is to teach the Corinthians to recognize and appreciate that diversity that characterizes God's people, specifically in the way that they use their spiritual giftedness. But he first needs to establish the importance of this unity that exists between these various gifted men and women because they are bound together in one symbolic body. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So in trying to understand people, we often place them into generalized categories based on some aspect of who they are because we think in certain ways about that 
kind of people. That's just how human beings use their minds to try to make sense of a world that is much too big for them to grasp with every detail. So we might think of people according to their financial status. We might make a judgment based on what we think they, they, they do as, as a worker in community or how much money they make. We might make the, the, the judgment that somebody is influential and so we might attribute more value to them even though that's not the way the Lord sees things. We might see somebody as non-influential, as, as, as not having the kind of gifts that make a huge impact, and we might think little of them. This is the error of man's mind. It's not the way that God teaches us to think about one another. We might categorize each other nationally and think about each other primarily in terms of our ethnicity or our national background. We might think of each other differently because of our sexual genders, men and women, and there are differences between those things. But we've got to be careful not to overemphasize gender, especially when it comes to salvation. We might think about people in terms of their intellectual capacities and think of those who are simple or those who are uh, gifted and brilliant. These are all things that the mind of man does to try to make understanding his world a remote possibility. But none of these differences can hold up once we become tied together to one another through faith in Christ. When we trust in Jesus and call upon his name, those distinctions become trivial. They're not the thing that defines us anymore. The thing that defines us now is the hope we have in Christ and the the regeneration that has come to us through the work of the Spirit. Though the people are many and diverse, they are now also one through this saving grace. So do you understand the extent of that oneness? Look again at the last part of verse 12. After talking about how the body functions, members and parts join together to work as a single unit, Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now that's a little unexpected, that so it is with Christ, isn't it? Why didn't Paul say so it is in the church? Right? That's the analogy he's drawing, right? Well, actually, in a sense, he did. When Paul says, so it is with Christ, this is short for Christ's body. In other words, he's talking specifically about how these members joined together become sort of the physical embodiment of Christ on earth. And so when he says, just as that is, so, is, so it is with Christ, he's saying, so it is with the church. And this is how we should see ourselves. What links us together in this special way? Spirit baptism links us together in this special way. Verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. In one spirit. Why isn't this talking about water baptism? Some suggest that it is, but I would argue and continue with you that it can't be talking about water baptism. And I I believe that, and I teach that with conviction, because Paul does not say here that we're simply baptized, which would naturally point to the water baptism with which believers are so familiar. That's so typical to the conversion process, right? If he says, we're all baptized into one body, that's what we would think of. But he doesn't just say that. He says, for in one spirit we were all baptized. He's qualifying the type of baptism that he's speaking about here. He's calling it a baptism of the spirit, and indicating to us that that it is an immersion of a different kind. We are baptized in one spirit. The spirit is the element into which we are being immersed. 
He's not the agent doing the baptizing. In fact, we can see in several places that Jesus is the agent who baptizes believers into this one body by immersing them in the Holy Spirit. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. This is one example of it. <clears throat> but you'll see this consistently throughout the New Testament. Jesus is teaching here, and he says, or this is actually John the Baptist teaching. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So who is the one doing the baptizing there? Christ is the one doing the baptizing there. And what is he baptizing us into? Not water, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But there's an option there too. He says, he will come and he will baptize with one of two elements. He'll baptize with the Spirit or he will baptize with fire. So there are two potential baptisms and everyone is going to experience one or the other of these two immersions, these two baptisms. So hold on to this church for a minute. There are two types of people in the world. And both of them will be baptized, either baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit, immersed with the blessings of God and made new by this life breathed into them, or baptized with the fire of judgment. These are the only two options. When Jesus baptizes us, immersing us in the Holy Spirit, a transformation occurs within us. We're now forever connected to God. When we, we sang about the fountain that is filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins just a moment ago, we're, des we're describing the cleansing regeneration that happens when somebody confesses their sin to God and cries out to Him in faith, trusting that His work on the cross has the power to overcome their wretchedness. And so in that moment of, 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 of humility before the Lord God, one who is saved by God is given new life. He who was formerly spiritually dead now comes to life and has the vitality to understand his situation. He is given a spirit by which now he can trust and live and move forward in proper obedience to God, whereas before, that individual could not please God. They were perpetually enemies to God and were constantly finding new ways to break God's law and to dishonor his rule in their lives. So we're baptized in the element of the Holy Spirit. And then we're baptized into a special connection with other believers, which Paul is teaching us to see is the unity of being Christ's body. So there's an urgency we don't want to miss here because if you're not a part of the body of Christ, then, then you are outside the realm of that blessing. I would urge you this morning as you sit here before the Word of God to consider where you belong in the grand scheme of eternity. This world that we live in is upside down with sin. And we're all seeing the effects of that day by day. The hurt that it brings us. When people disregard the law of God and live for their own selfish desires. When they manipulate one another. When they don't care for one another. This travesty of sin is evidence to all of us. And there is only one way for us to escape this travesty of sin of which we were, we were guilty ourselves. The only way to escape that is through the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. When we have exhausted every avenue and we've looked at our lives and said, how can I overcome my own personal wickedness? And the Lord has illuminated us through the Spirit in such a way that we can see there's nothing we can do. There is no path that we can take. There is no effort that we can make to cleanse our own hearts. And then we see the call of the gospel 
And if you are a believer, that effectual call resounded in your heart and you recognize that there was only one way for you to be redeemed and that was through Jesus' work. Not through yours, but through Christ's great and mighty and perfect and complete work. When you see that and you trust in that and you receive the gift of grace, then the, the wrath that rests upon all who disobey God's word is now put on Christ. Jesus, as he died on the cross, then bears the burden of your suffering for you and you're no longer guilty before the Lord. That is what it means to be a Christian. But for those who reject Christ, for those who go to the grave or, or last until the return of Jesus and they have never said yes to the Lord Jesus, they have never bowed their heart to him and confessed their sin to him, then the only alternative is a baptism of a much more dire kind, and that is baptism with fire. Christ will return. There is a day when he will come back for his people. And when he does so, all that we have broken in creation will be set right. Everything that is crippled about this, this creation will be burned with fire and washed away, and Jesus will remake a new heavens and a new earth in which those who trust in him can dwell forever by his side, worshiping him and enjoying the grace that he has given to them. So I urge you, if you do not yet know Christ, confess your sin to him. Receive him as Savior. Cry out to the Lord God and confess that you have a need for what Christ alone can provide. We as the church are immersed in this Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but verse 13 adds that, um, to that by saying that we are all made to drink of this one Spirit as well. It would be understandable to misread this as a reference to the sacrament of communion, and some commentators have done that, but that's not what Paul is actually talking about here. The sacrament of baptism and communion are very important to the people of God and to the life of the church. And we're going to take part in the Lord's table in just a, a few moments. But we don't get the Holy Spirit by water baptism. We don't receive the Spirit through that act of coming and being put below the water and brought out of it. Likewise, we don't get the Holy Spirit by taking the bread and the wine of communion. That's not how we receive those things. We get the Spirit by regeneration. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that every believer experiences at the time that they are made alive in Christ. So spirit baptism is literally the immersion in the Spirit that happens when Christ takes us out of darkness and brings us into his marvelous light. Don't forget that the Greek verb that we translate as baptize was simply the common verb for immersion. When we immerse something, we are baptizing that thing in something. So what Paul is saying here is that we as sinners were at one point completely devoid of the Spirit. We were spiritually dead, deserving the wrath of God. Not a drop of the Holy Spirit belonged to us. But for all who were called into fellowship with the Son, we who were spiritually destitute by God's amazing grace have now been completely immersed. We have been drenched and soaked in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Water baptism is an outward declaration of that inward reality, that a person is now living their life immersed in the Spirit of God. It is a picture of that truth. It's a physical metaphor that displays to all who see it that here is one who is now drenched in the Spirit of God and living according to the power that only that Spirit can provide. Not only were we baptized by spiritual baptism into one body, but we were also made to drink of the one Spirit. So two things are going on here. We've been placed into the body of Christ by immersion of the Holy Spirit, 
and then something has been placed inside of us. Believers are blessed to drink deeply of the presence of God, for the Holy Spirit now resides within. It is not just topical, it is systemic that the Spirit is now in His people and dwells with them and endures with them. How much of it did we drink? How much of the Holy Spirit did we get? There might be some who would suggest that, oh, so-and-so got a whole lot of the Spirit, and such-and-such over here just got a little bit. That's not biblical at all. John 3.34, For he whom God has sent utters the words of grace, for he gives the Spirit without measure. If you've been given the Spirit, you haven't been just given a little dropper full of it. You don't just get a little bit of it, a little tiny thimbleful when you come for communion. No, you have been given the Spirit to the fullest. That spirit is now yours, and you belong to that spirit. That's an important distinction to make. See, friends, preaching is intended to show God's truth. It's, it's intended to reveal what we as his people should believe. But it is also instrumental in teaching us what not to believe. And so this morning, I want to take a moment here at the end of the sermon to address very commonly taught things that are false about spirit baptism in particular. Spiritual baptism or baptism of the spirit is a signature of most Pentecostal theologians, but it is interpreted in a way that the Scripture does not describe here to us. It is often taught as a second kind of salvation that an individual will experience. So there's two baptisms in the Pentecostal economy. First, you're baptized by water, which is significant because it shows you that you have been saved by the Lord, that He has redeemed you and washed you clean from your sins. But the Pentecostal will teach you to look out for a second baptism a baptism by the Holy Spirit that is a supernatural manifestation of the spiritual sign gifts, usually identified by speaking in tongues. The idea is that the believer needs a personal experience, similar to the Pentecost experience of Acts chapter 2, when God allowed the Spirit to descend upon the apostles like tongues of fire, and they were able to speak in languages that were not their own languages, so that all the various people groups that had gathered there in Jerusalem might hear the gospel in a native tongue that they could understand. And so the Pentecostal will teach that each individual needs to have their own personal Pentecost, where you're saved and you're secure in Christ, but now the Spirit has been given to you through a special anointing. <clears throat> this should raise some eyebrows. If you've been reading the New Testament and you're familiar with some of the passages that speak about the role of the Holy Spirit, if the typical Pentecostal point of view holds fast to this idea that a person can be saved but not yet have the presence and the gifting of the Holy Spirit, then it logically follows that that individual believes salvation can occur apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Is that true? It is not. The Spirit is salvation for us. When the Spirit comes and breathes life into us, that is part and parcel of our regeneration. Without the Spirit, there is no life. Without the Spirit, we are dead in our sins. The Spirit is the one that illuminates us. Ephesians 1, 16-18 speaks of the fact that we would be ignorant to the things of God if the Holy Spirit did not open our eyes to them. And, and of course, we see the Pharisees displaying just that. Many of those Pharisees who were ultra-religious people but had hearts that were darkened to the things of God, they were intelligent and trained, and yet they could not see that Jesus was the Messiah. They were blind to it because there was no illumination of the Spirit. And we would re remain blind to it as well unless the Spirit were given to us. 
So apart from the Spirit, without the presence of the Spirit, the gospel means nothing to you. It is nonsense to you. The Spirit seals us. It is our guarantee. We see it in 2 Corinthians 1.22 that the Spirit of God is our guarantee that we will dwell with Him forever. If you do not have the Spirit, what do you not have? A guarantee. You have no promise. That is the marker of the, true co- the new covenant with you. The Spirit is the life force of this body of Christ that you have just been saved into. So if you don't have the Spirit, you are not connected to the body. Spiritual gifts are given by the discretion of the Holy Spirit. We learned that last week. We're going to talk more about that next week. They are not for personal edification primarily. Now, you're blessed to have your gifts, but your gifts are for the church, right? They are for the benefit of the body of Christ. This totally goes against the notion that these sign gifts were somehow your entry into the kingdom of heaven, that by getting this mysterious activity of the Spirit in your life, that now you're affirmed and you can believe firmly that you are truly the Son of God or the daughter of God. That is, that is not what the Spirit is used for. It's a misappropriation of the spiritual gifts. Those gifts are for the blessing of the greater body. To teach this two-stage salvation, it creates a de facto division in the church. Now you don't have one body who's united under Christ, filled with the Spirit. You have some believers who do not yet have the Spirit, who are somehow less than and not filled and only have a little taste or maybe a little touch of God's love in their life. And then you have those who are filled with the Spirit and are able to perform these miraculous sign gifts and and are walking in great and abundant faith. And so what you have here is a church that is no longer unified. You have a church that is divided. You have a church in which there is a higher calling and there is a lower calling. That is not what God wants for his people. He wants a church who are one. And that is what he's teaching these Corinthians. He's trying to help them understand that these gifts were for your blessing, not to divide you, not to create a competition whereby you looked at some as lower than yourselves and, and some higher that you'd want to aspire to someday. Can you see how this would incite young believers, those who are maybe young in the faith, to feel compelled to force some kind of expression of tongues or some sort of miraculous sign as a hope to affirm that they are truly saved and anointed. You can see the pressure that would put on a young Christian. When Paul makes it very clear in chapter 14 that not every believer speaks in tongues or prophesies. So if somebody tries to manufacture this spiritual gift in themselves, they're simply playing spiritual games. They're not actually letting the Spirit fill them and do what the Spirit alone can do. It also makes those who have spiritual gifts that are not as spectacular and not as miraculous feel as though they're not very important to the church. Oh, I don't have the gift of speaking in tongues or the gift of prophecy. All I do is is practice hospitality. My gifting is simply the work of service. I'm one of these lower level, entry level Christians. I'm not one of those greater Christians. And what what a disparity that creates amongst the hearts of believers who are supposed to see one another as filled with the Spirit and fully empowered to do the work that God has called His church to do. So there is indeed a baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it is not something that you can mature into. It is not something that you earn by spiritual obedience. It is not something that has to manifest itself in some miraculous sign. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that every believer experiences at the time they are regenerated. Jesus saves. And when He does save, a person in that moment 
is immersed in the Holy Spirit of God. This is not necessarily an emotion or a felt experience. It is a spiritual reality that marks a change in identity and belonging. This doesn't mean that we ought not strive to be filled with the Spirit. For although all Christians have a full measure of the Spirit, we often don't allow that Spirit to fill us. We don't walk in ways that are indicative of the fact that that Spirit is there and is guiding and leading. So should we desire to let the Spirit fill us? We are commanded to do so. Ephesians 5 tells us this. But if you are a believer, the Spirit is not something you you wait around for. It's not something that you have to prove that you deserve. It is given to you as your seal, and that is why you are saved today. As a Christian, the baptism of the Spirit means that you're no longer strictly your own, that you belong to Him because that signature and seal means that you were bought at a great price. Jesus purchased you with His blood. It means that you are purified by that same blood. You're washed clean. You are made holy. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit of God would have no part in you. Because of Christ's righteousness, now your body is like a a pure vessel that the Spirit of God can enter into and to dwell in. Because every sin that you have committed in the past and every sin that you will commit, if you're a believer, is washed clean from you. It is paid for in full on on the cross. If you are baptized in the Spirit, then you are a temple that houses the indwelt Spirit of God in you. So everything that you do should strive for a a holiness and a purity in your actions because you want to honor that spirit that, was, that is within you. You're part of a bigger organism, God's living church, which acts as the functional body of God the Son to carry out His will here on earth. Your connection to the body is sure. It is systemic. For the Holy Spirit is that which animates and compels this body of Christ. These are the words of Anthony Thistleton. He's one of the uh, strong commenters on the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, Any theology that might imply that this one baptism in 13a, in which believers were baptized in one spirit, might mark off some post-conversion experience or status enjoyed by only some Christians, attacks and undermines Paul's entire argument and emphasis. And I think Anthony is right on there. The whole point of this section of 1 Corinthians is to prove that we should value the diversity of the gifts, that we should not do anything that would elevate one set of gifts higher than the other gifts, that we should rejoice in whatever God has put in our hearts and in our minds to do for Him and thank the Lord for the ways that the Spirit gifts us and empowers us to be useful for Him in eternal ways. The degree and the quality of unity that defines the connection between believers is much deeper It is much more substantial than the Corinthians understood it to be. If it is true that you are now part of a greater whole, one that shares the one same Holy Spirit, then what happens to your fellow Christians also in some sense happens to you. Life in Christ is a shared experience, church. This is true of our victories. When a person's using their gifting and shining brighter than you, can you rejoice that their victory is yours as well? Can you see that they are not doing that to satisfy their own desire for exaltation, but they're trying to exalt the same Savior you want to see glorified in your own life? You are one body. So these distinctions are academic now. Rejoice in the victories of your brothers and sisters. When your fellow Christians suffer, you also suffer with them. This is your hurt. Their hurt belongs to you. Did the Corinthians understand this? They did not, sadly. And that is why some of them would exercise their personal freedoms even if it caused their weaker brothers and sisters to stumble 
by eating these foods that were sacrificed to idols against their conscience. That's why some of them were happy to engorge themselves during the Lord's Supper and leave others with nothing at all to eat. They did not realize they were hurting themselves by hurting the church of God. That is the extent to which we need to treasure the unity of the body of Christ. And that is how we are to celebrate the body's unity in such a way that we don't fall into patterns of envy and competition and jealousy. Let me close with a brief word of prayer and then we're going to transition to our time of communion. God, we thank you for teaching us so much about your body, this church that you have baptized us into through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we look forward to learning more about the diversity of that same body. Help us, Lord God, to to not sell short the meaning of our membership, God, that we are connected to you in ways that we cannot become disconnected again, Lord. We are yours forever. And so I pray, God, that we would not make the grave error of isolating ourselves from those brothers and sisters whom you have provided to be a joy and a blessing to us and us a joy and blessing to them. Lord God, may you be honored and glorified in the working of your physical body, of this gathering of believers throughout the world who worship you and praise your name and are called together to fulfill the great commission by your power and your strength and guidance. We thank you for all this in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.